Good morning and welcome to uh, Christ Community. Uh, you all look good today. Uh, my name is Tom Nelson and uh, we're really glad you're here on this summer day. Uh, I grew up in Minnesota, not Spain, but I think the Midwest is great, Kenny. Just want you to know. <laughs> variety, variety, the spice of life, isn't it? Um, so again, we're glad you're here and I hope you're having a good summer with vacation and maybe a new rhythm a little bit. Uh, when was the last time uh, you found yourself saying, wow? Perhaps this week, a big, uncontainable wow came out of your mouth when you watched Golden State Warrior Steph Curry knock in three after three-pointers. Or maybe you felt the wow of wonder coming over you on a trip or a vacation or flying into Denver International Airport when you saw the snow-capped Rockies emerge in front of you. Sometimes we have a wow that is uncontainable, and we have to say it. We see a brilliant sunset over the Pacific Ocean, or we listen to a stunning symphony. Or how can we not help but say wow when we hold our child for the first time, or our grandchild for the first time? And yes, some of you real techno nerds find yourself the latest edition of the iPhone or the latest app going, wow. You know, this week I found myself literally saying with my coffee in hand early in the morning, wow. And maybe this surprises you, but it was reading the Wall Street Journal. Do you realize that after only six years of existence, from zero, Uber has taken over the world? It's amazing. I think about this, it is the largest transportation company in the globe and doesn't own one vehicle. It has massively changed the paradigm of transportation and technology. It has greater market capitalization than General Motors and a whole slew of companies in six years. And reading this article with my coffee in hand early in the morning, I find myself talking to myself going, wow! See, there is something within each one of us that resonates with wonder. And like many precious things in the world, Wonder is such a desirable thing, but it is such a fragile and fleeting thing. And all too often in the normal hustle and bustle of everyday life, isn't it true we all live very wonderless lives? I believe one of the great perils of our increasingly secularized culture, a culture that increasingly turns its blind eye to the transcendent, is the egregious an impoverished loss of wonder. When wonder exits the back door of our lives, you can be sure that meaning slips out with it. And when we lose wonder, we lose meaning. And tragically, all that is left to take wonder's place is a soul-smothering boredom. In a wonderful book, an insightful book, Dale Omquist, entitled Common Sense, writes this about our current culture. He says, the modern world is bored. Our entertainment grows louder, flashier, and more bizarre in an ever-desperate attempt just to keep our attention. This is not exactly new. Maybe it's amplified. One of the most winsome and brilliant Brits of the 20th century, G.K. Chesterton, put it this way, as only he could do. Chesterton said, the world will never starve for want of wonders, but only for want of wonder. 
And then he says, there are no dreary sights, only dreary sightseers. How would you describe your life this morning? Are you a weary and dreary sightseer in the journey of life? Let me ask you, when you look at this past week, has your life been running on virtual autopilot? It's quite efficient, isn't it? But it's also very wonderless. Are you living a wonderful life or a wonderless life? See, in our text this morning, we are going to encounter a story of the perilous loss of wonder. And if you've been with us in our message series, you'll recall that the gospel writer Matthew presents Jesus' teaching on what is the truly good life and the truly good person. That's the big idea. What it is, where it's found, and how it's experienced in our lives. And this morning we are going to see that a truly good life is filled with wonder. Wonder found in a wonder-filled faith in Jesus. If you brought a Bible with you, I'd like you to turn with me to the Gospel writer Matthew, first book in the New Testament. And we are going to look at the very end, the crescendo of chapter 13. Now, the last two weeks, we have been looking at parables and how parables unpack this good life in Jesus' kingdom reign to all who will apprentice themselves to Jesus. So now as we come to the end of chapter 13, we encounter a narrative story. Notice the literary genre shift. Do not miss that. As we explore verses 53 through 58, I would like us to do three things. I would like us to consider a tragic story of the loss of wonder. And then right on the heels, to explore two telling ironies about wonder, and then, as we end, three takeaways about regaining wonder in your life and mine. So the flow of this morning, if you're taking notes or listening, which I hope you are, is a tragic story, two ironies, and three takeaways. Let's dive in. As a first century itinerant rabbi, we know if we have been here and been a part of this study, and if you're not, you can enter right into the story, Jesus is attracting rock star-sized crowds. People are simply flocking to Jesus in the first century. But Matthew also wants us to know and keep in mind that not everyone is into Jesus. The religious leaders of the day are clearly not into him. They want to discredit him. In fact, if you scoop back to chapter 12, right before on the heels of this in verse 14, they are conspiring to destroy him. So against the riveting backdrop of the adulation of the crowds and the rejection of the religious leaders, Matthew now tells us that Jesus heads back to his hometown. And you would think this prodigy, this brilliant person, who's making this big splash across the nation, going back to his small hometown, would get a ticker tape parade, wouldn't you? Maybe even the key to the city of Nazareth. But what we discover surprises us. Matthew arranges his narrative in verses 53 through 58 structurally around three words. The three words flow like this. In verse 54, 
we begin to see the hometown crowd's response. These three words capture the hometown's response in progression. First, in verse 54, we read his friends and neighbors are first amazed at Jesus. Then in verse 57, they become offended by Jesus. And in verse 58, they dig in their heels and refuse to believe him. So Matthew arranges this text around these three words. They are the literary, literary, or literary scaffolding of the progression. If you get this, you get the story. Amazement, offense, and unbelief. Now, as we look a little closer, the word amazed begins this text, and it is carrying the greatest amount of semantic weight. The word amazed is the sense of wonder. It is, it is the wow of wonder. But right on the heels of that in verse 57, you'll notice, is the verse offended. In the Greek word, this, this idea, we get into English the word scandal. And when you have a scandal, at the core of it is you don't believe someone is trustworthy, right? That's the idea. It is the opposite of belief. It is repulsion, anger, or shock at the lack of integrity. Now, in the text, we notice that what is most likely a few weeks, five, six, seven, perhaps, as Jesus teaches in the local Sabbath or synagogue in Nazareth, Jesus' hometown crowd goes from, in just a short few weeks, from amazement to willful rejection. And Matthew is telling us, as we began this text, that the wow of wonder ends in angry unbelief. And here we find an important truth for us to consider this morning. That is, the loss of wonder of Jesus leads to a lack of faith in Jesus. Why? Because in our lives, like in the first century listeners of Jesus, wonder and faith are inextricably linked. When we lose faith, we lose wonder. When we lose wonder, we lose faith. They are very closely tied together. So we need to listen up. This text speaks with great profundity to our lives. So strong is the hometown crowd's unbelief and rejection of Jesus that if we look at the gospel writer Luke, Luke tells us in Luke chapter 4, you can look at this story in verses 16 to 30 of Luke 4 later, that the small town home crowd runs Jesus out of town. In fact, they take him to a cliff to push him off to kill him. Sometimes, whether we've studied Jesus' life a lot or not, sometimes we think the great hostility against Jesus to discredit him and to kill him in complicit conspiracy with the Roman government, with the religious leaders, we forget that Jesus first felt this hostility in his hometown. His hometown crowd wanted to kill him long before the religious leaders did. We often miss this. Luke will not let us miss this. He was a meticulous historian. Now Matthew gives us, in this text this morning, an insightful glimpse into the mindset of this hostile hometown crowd against Jesus. Matthew quotes verbatim, Notice in the text, their words in verses 54 through 56. Let me highlight that again. Here's the text. Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? Are not his brothers James, Joseph, and Simon, and Judas here? Are not all his sisters with us? Where did this man get all these things? 
Now, Matthew repeats twice the hometown crowd's increasingly negative and caustic description of their hometown boy. You will notice, if you are observing the text twice, Matthew repeats this man. And in the Greek text, it is emphatic. It's a derisive term. And you'll notice how the contrast jumps out in contrast to the naming his brother's names and not naming Jesus. Do you see that? And also notice the repeated question. Do you see it? Where did Jesus get his ideas and his powers? This interrogative is not asking for an answer. (laughs) It is to cast an ominous insinuation like the religious leaders did in chapter 12. Matthew is echoing the religious leaders that Jesus' power came from Satan himself. So in telling the tragic story of Jesus' hometown folks, Matthew, like the other gospel writers, opened for us a window into what Jesus' life was like for 30 years before he became an itinerant rabbi for three See, we often forget, don't we, that on the way to the cross to die for your sin and mine, Jesus, the very Son of God, would spend the first 30 years of his time on this sin-scarred planet living and working in a small town. Theologians describe this as Jesus' hidden years. But let me say this very clearly. If you want to know the coherence of the biblical story... Jesus' hidden years are very important. For those who embrace the gospel and faithfully follow Jesus, the hidden years are vital. Bless you. So what were Jesus' hidden years like? What were they like? Have you thought about that? Let's take just a a little bit of time this morning because this text anchors it here. What about Jesus' hometown? What about his family life? What about his work? Have you thought about that? First, what about his hometown? We know from archaeology and history, Nazareth was a small town. (laughs) It was on the edge of Sepphoris, which was, Sepphoris was one of the leading cities of that area. It's a Roman capital. It was a bustling economic area. Jesus most likely worked there some. Uh, If you ever grew up in a small town, if I were to ask you, you know, some of you grew up in a big city, And if you've grown up in a small town, you know what's going on, right? I grew up in a small town of 2,000 in Minnesota with one stoplight on a good day. Let me tell you in a small town, if you don't know this, there are no secrets in a small town. None. And there are men and women who take it upon themselves to be the town megaphone of gossip. I'm just telling you, I could listen to this, but I won't. I promise for my small town. My small town in Minnesota was just like Garrison Killers Lake Wobegon. If you want to know, that was it. Everybody is related to everybody in some way. And memories of the past linger like a blanket of fog over the present. I've just, if, you're, if you're a part of a small town, you're, you're going like this. If you're not part of a small town, believe me, that's what happens. <coughs> Jesus grew up in this environment. He also grew up, can you imagine, under the dark shadows of perceived illegitimacy. John will tip his hat to this in his gospel. Jesus, if you imagine Jesus as a young boy or teenager, as a young man, he felt the cold stares and the snickering in the village when he walked through the the cobblestone streets. 
Nazareth's inhabitants didn't buy into the supernatural conception of Jesus, let me tell you. To them, can you imagine, put, put on your, your, your own sandals here for a moment, your own thinking in the first century. An angel visiting Mary? Hmm, that's a fanciful implausibility and unconvincing spin in the first century as well as the 21st. They knew where babies came from. I mean, that's not a late discovery, y'all. <laughs> and notice the reference here to being the carpenter's son and Mary's son has a barb of moral scandal inferred in this text. Do not miss it. The hometown crowd is saying to Jesus, ha, who do you think you are? And I won't use who in that blankety blank do you think you are. That's the picture. That was his hometown. Nice hometown, huh? How'd you like to grow up there? What about his family life? The gospel writers tell us quite a bit about his family life, actually. Matthew explicitly tells us here that Jesus had four brothers, and he lists their names. He also had some sisters. He grew up in a large family. I grew up in a large family myself. My imagination goes all kinds of places what it was like for Jesus to grow up with this crew. Can you imagine the dynamics of Jesus' family, the conflict, the sibling rivalry? And when you factor in the equation that the oldest brother, the oldest son, was the perfect child. <laughs> I mean, Jesus was potty trained. He learned to read. He went through puberty. He remained sinless. Can you imagine how hard it had been to be the younger brothers of the most brilliant prodigy and the perfect person is your older brother? How could you not resent your older brother? How does one, Mary Joseph, parent the perfect child? And what we believe, there's a long tradition, it's a tradition, it's not certainty, that one of his brothers, James, actually becomes a follower of Jesus and writes the epistle of James. All the rest of his family don't believe it, except for Mary, as far as we know. Joseph might have died, we're not sure, his guardian father. But the gospel writer John goes out of his way, John who is closest to the family, who Jesus entrusted his mom to at the cross, explicitly tells us in chapter 7 of John that his brothers were unbelieving. And Mark, do you remember this, the gospel of Mark? Mark tells us explicitly what his family thought of Jesus, that he had lost his marbles. Mark 3, verse 21. Notice, and when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. Wow. In these hidden years, Jesus lived a very common life, but it was no picnic. It was a life... And, and, and grasp this, that he felt the most egregious and deep pain of rejection by his hometown neighbors and friends and most of his family members. Right? Mary's the only one of his family by him at the cross. The only one. Jesus will speak about the polarization of following him and what it means in your family, and the rejection you may feel. But Jesus is not just speaking abstract, friends. He is speaking personally. Perhaps the greatest pain of his life was his family rejecting him. It would be for me. 
See, most of our life joys come from our family of origins, don't they? But also most of the excruciating pain we feel. And some of us are thinking of people right now in our life, in our families, that have and do cause us great pain. Faith is often polarizing. And following Jesus can bring painful rejection. One of friends of Christ's community is Vahid. We met Vahid several years ago. One of our Iranian partners. His story is powerful. His story is powerful to say that as a young boy who grew up in Iran, following Jesus meant extraordinary rejection. As Vahid tells us the story as a teenager, his family rejected him. For years, he endured the most severe rejection by his family, including physical beatings, verbal abuse, and he will talk about how his mom put shards of glass in his meal to kill him several times and poison him. Now, we may not face this kind of family rejection by those closest to us because we follow Jesus, but we will feel often rejection from those closest to us, many family members who don't believe in Jesus. See, in the hidden years, a very uncommon Jesus had a very difficult hometown, a very difficult family life, and a very challenging work experience. What was Jesus' work life like? He's known by this, right? In the text. In an early age, Jesus was apprenticed to his guardian father as a carpenter. He was the oldest son. One of the most beautiful pictures of this is a classic painting, 17th century painting in France called by Latour. It's called St. Joseph the Carpenter. I don't know if you've seen it, but it's a brilliant picture. A fantastic painting of young Jesus apprenticing to his father, his guardian human father. Many of us imagine Jesus on the cross. Most of us haven't thought the majority of his time he spent here. What is the meaning of that? Why is that important? Why does it matter? It matters a great deal. Now, the Greek word for carpenter means a skillful blue-collar worker, a craftsman. We don't know all that Jesus did for those 30 years, but we know he built things with his hands, his hands that would be one day nail scarred. He built homes, most likely. Clearly, he built plows and yokes and furniture. See, Jesus spent the vast majority of his time on earth not as a miracle worker, but as a blue-collar worker. Day in and day out, Jesus worked hard, long hours. He dealt with difficult customers, like some of us have done this week. Difficult co-workers. He worked with holy sweat on his brow and itchy sawdust on his hands every day. Can you imagine going to the carpenter shop and encountering Jesus? Have you thought about that? Can you imagine the very one who set the stars in place who by his very word created the wood he was working on, makes you a table. Now that is the wow of wonder. Wow, what a table. See, doing good work as a carpenter, Jesus, the sinless son of God who came to redeem a broken world, affirms strongly the central thread of human work in God's creation design. And he reminds each of us of the dignity and importance of our paid or unpaid work. Jesus' work in a carpentry shop mattered. 
and so does yours. See, Jesus does not only just care about your Sunday worship experience, he deeply cares about your Monday work experience too. Jesus created you with work in mind, and it is in our everyday work, and do not miss this, where we love our neighbor most, but also where a life of worshipful wonder is found most. Jesus' hometown crowd misses this. What we see in this text is a very sobering loss of wonder about Jesus. And that can occur in our lives too, no matter if we're newer to the church, newer to the faith, or we've been around a long time. See, in Matthew 13 in this text, we see a predictable pattern of erosion of wonder that is timeless for us. Here's how it goes. Notice it. When wonder erodes, a pattern emerges. Think about your life and mine. First, there's an initial curiosity about Jesus. We hear the good news of the gospel. There may be an initial curiosity, a positive enthusiasm, but then things begin to fade, and a growing negativity builds. In wonder's place, often we find a smothering blanket of doubt, a critical spirit, a growing bitterness or cynicism in our hearts. The growing negativity that erodes wonder in our life may present itself as indifference or lukewarmness or dullness or boredom. Whatever the case, the loss of wonder about Jesus inevitably leads to a lack of faith in Jesus and it leads to a lack of love for him. Wonder, faith, and love are tied together. And notice in the text, it moves from initial curiosity about Jesus, a growing negativity about him, and then willful unbelief. That's how this text ends. When faith in Jesus fades, our love grows cold, a willful unbelief sets in and calluses the human heart. It is the black hole of unbelief. And it refuses to let the light of the gospel of grace and truth in our lives. Hear me carefully. When wonder is lost, faith is lost. And when faith is lost, wonder is lost. When it comes to Jesus, where are you this morning? One of the great perils of unbelief in Jesus is the loss of wonder in our lives. Because Jesus is the source and object of the wonderful life. Without knowing Jesus, increasingly, you and I will never experience the wonder for which we were created. We were created wondrously by a wonderful God to experience wonder. Not just on the mountaintops of the extraordinary, but in the everyday ordinary of life. Maybe you're here this morning just checking out the Christian faith. Maybe there are big doubts you have about Jesus. It's okay. But are you willing to doubt your doubts about Jesus too? Are you willing to take a closer look at Jesus? Are you even open to Jesus unleashing the wow of wonder in your mind and heart? And what I've experienced in my life the more clearly I see Jesus, the closer I get to him, the more I go, wow. You may be here this morning and feel you know a lot about Jesus too. You may have been in church all your life or much of it. Matthew 13 is a sobering warning for many of us who are regular church attenders. And attending church regularly is a good thing. Don't get me wrong. But we must dare not confuse familiarity with Jesus 
for faith in Jesus. In our text, we find two perilous ironies. If you have been a part of our series, you know that Matthew traffics in irony. Drip, 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 irony, irony, irony. And he has shown us the greatest irony of the great reversal already in his great teaching that those who we often think are on the outside are really the ones on the inside and vice versa in his kingdom. But the hidden years present us with two big ironies. Let's look at them briefly. First, the wondrous irony of the familiar. The greatest danger to wonder, dear friends, is not unfamiliarity, but familiarity. And here is the dripping irony in our text. Those closest to Jesus are actually farthest from Jesus. Those who have been around him the longest, who truly knew him the least and rejected him the most. See, proximity and superficial familiarity with Jesus are a threat in your life and my life to true faith and to living a wonder-filled life. Jesus powerfully teaches this in the parable of the prodigal sons. Remember that prodigal in Luke 15? We think a lot about the younger son who left all and did all that, but the older son is a part of the parable. The irony of the elder son was that he never left home, right? But he was far from his father. He had left his father's loving relationship long ago. And the irony of the parable of the prodigal is it's not the prodigal who's the farthest from his dad. The one who's not the prodigal is farthest from his dad. Ouch. The second irony is the irony of the ordinary. It's a wondrous irony here. The greatest source of wonder is the ordinary, not the extraordinary. We tend to think the wow of wonder is focused on the extraordinary moments. But Matthew wants us to see as we look closer at Jesus that it is the ordinariness of Jesus that is actually most extraordinary. We should not look to Jesus the Messiah as a miracle worker only, but as Jesus the Messiah as the blue-collar worker. Or we miss much of what the New Testament teaches. Let me just give you a window here. The gospel writer John, who was his closest earthly friend, who knew Jesus better than anybody else, speaks of Jesus and introduces him in his gospel with the wow of wonder. You cannot read John 1 without the wow of wonder coming out of every text. The word, the Logos, became flesh, Jesus, and dwelt among us, and we've seen his what? His glory. (sighs) Glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John knew better than any earthly person that Jesus' glory was not only displayed in his miraculous powers. He saw that, and it was wondrous. Or his brilliant teaching, but in the extraordinariness of his ordinary life, he lived with Jesus over three years and saw it then. An extraordinary faith is lived in ordinary life. The Apostle Paul knew this when he wrote to the Thessalonian church. He instructs the followers of Jesus to live a wonder-filled, ordinary life. And the text jumps out with the wow of wonder to make it, quote what Paul says, their ambition to live a quiet life, to work with their hands, just like Jesus did. For Paul, the wow of wonder of Christian discipleship was not primarily in those extraordinary moments, but in the ordinary moments of everyday 
life. These two ironies we must keep in mind as we follow Jesus. The greatest danger to wonder is familiarity, not unfamiliarity. And the greatest source of wonder is the ordinary, not the extraordinary. Uh, Ann Kimmel is one of my favorite writers. She died a while back. She's written so many wonderful little books. This brilliant woman. One of my favorite quotes of Ann Kimmel, one of my tragedies of life, I never met her personally. Some of you maybe did. She says, life is filled with ordinary days. And what you do in ordinary days is what makes your life extraordinary. Man, she was reading the Gospels. As apprentices of Jesus, are we living extraordinary, ordinary lives? Let me challenge us with three takeaways. Three takeaways. Story of the loss of wonder, the ironies about the nature of wonder, and three takeaways about regaining wonder in our life. Okay? First, if you and I are going to regain a more wonderful life, a more wonderful faith in Jesus, first we need to slow down. Number one. And when I say slow down, I do not necessarily mean a matter of your schedule, more a matter of the mindset. Some of us may be doing too much. Some of us may be doing too little. We will need to make priority adjustments. The heart of the matter in our life is a hurried and distracted spirit that inhibits a life of wonder. Again, we must never confuse an increasing familiarity with Jesus for a deepening intimacy with him. It's one of the greatest threats of those who follow Jesus for a while. The ordinary spiritual disciplines in everyday life are the primary way apprentices of Jesus deepen their intimacy with him. He modeled it with his father. Christ community, we talk about five foundational ones that we weave in our life as an act of grace, not legalism, solitude, study, fasting, prayer, and service. The spiritual disciplines cultivate this closer intimacy with Jesus. One that stokes wonder in our heart every day and reorders our loves. It's like a marriage relationship if you're married. Very similar. The daily discipline and intentionality nurture intimacy, don't they? The discipline to have a date night, dinner together on the deck, a morning hug as you leave, all enhances intimacy, and wonder. If we are to regain wonder in our lives and in our relationship with Jesus, my dear friends, let's slow down and let's stay reflective. Slow down. Secondly, stay curious. One of the most amazing bumper stickers, usually when I see bumper stickers, I want to smash the car ahead of me. It's my road rage issue. You know that. You know. It simply said, stay curious. It's brilliant and important. Because curiosity fuels discovery and wonder. I've been reminded of this wonder as a new member of our family joined us on May 20th. Listen, I welcome Harley. Here's Harley. I wanted to introduce you to Harley. <laughs> Harley and I have been spending quite a bit of time in our backyard. You know, Harley is curious about everything. You know that's true when you're younger. There's a whole new world for Harley to explore. Every little piece matters. And the irony I'm experiencing with my dear friend, little Harley, is that the older I get, I should be more curious, and the irony is I often am less curious. When it comes to our Christian faith and learning to follow Jesus, there is a great danger for many of us to say, oh, I've heard it before, I've read it before, I know everything to know. We don't say that. 
but in a message or a Bible study or reading, oh, I haven't heard that before. Right? It's true for all of us. No matter how long we've studied the Bible, it's an extraordinary masterpiece. The longer we have followed Jesus, the more inexhaustible and deep do we find the life he offers us. It just gets gooder. Can I use that? More wondrous. New vistas. New aspects of who Jesus is. Following Jesus is the most wonderful life imaginable. Nothing compares to that. You and I can fill our lives with wonder that evaporates. But Jesus' wonder just keeps building until we see him face to face. Lastly, be attentive. Slow down, stay curious, and be attentive. Wonder is not as much about the big things of life we simply cannot miss as it is in the small things we are likely to miss around us. When we are inattentive to a God-bathed world, God is nowhere to be seen, but when we are attentive, God is seen everywhere. The attentive life is a wonder-filled life. The wonder of a God-bathed world is remarkable in its gift to us every day. For us to see and appreciate Christ's mercies and God's glories of wonder at every moment, everything we encounter. So what is the wonderful vocational contribution God wants you to make this week? Can I ask you, will you see Monday morning as going back to the grind or back to the glory of a wonderful life? Can you imagine Jesus going to the carpenter shop thinking, oh, what a grind? I can't. How will you approach your work this week? Will you be attentive to the patches of God light around you, the people that God presents to you, the wonderful people? As Lewis says, there is no mere mortal. Every person is, yes, a mess, but they're a masterpiece of an image bearer of God. How do you see the wonder in the people around you? Will you be attentive to the ordinary? And will you celebrate the ordinary? See, the wow of wonder awaits each of us. And it is found in the yoke of Jesus Christ and in the glory of the gospel. The person of Christ and the good news of the gospel is life's ultimate wow. As we celebrate Holy Communion this morning, we are reminded that gospel faith sees and embraces the wonderful extraordinariness of ordinariness. On the night before his crucifixion, can you imagine Jesus found and infused the ordinary with the extraordinary? Against the familiar backdrop of the Passover, which had been celebrated for 2,000 years, Jesus ushered his disciples into the new territory of unfamiliarity. Jesus took the common everyday ordinary elements of the bread and the wine and turned it into a wonderful moment that we still remember 2,000 years ago, or 2,000 years later. Holy Communion is a memorial to Jesus, his sinless life, his atoning death, his death-defying resurrection, and his soon return to earth. The Lord's Supper or Holy Communion is a glorious proclamation of God's good news of the gospel. As a sign of remembrance, it is a gracious gift. It unleashes gratitude and new wonder in our lives. Holy communion was designed to evoke the wow of wonder in our hearts and put a big wow on our lips. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, Father and Son, bless the elements 
of Holy Communion. May you fill our hearts and minds with gratitude and the wow of wonder of the glory of Christ, his glorious gospel that saves us from our sin and infuses our life with hope and wonder every day. We pray that in Jesus' name, amen.